Brethren in Christ, Laudator Jesus Christus. In secula. This is Timothy Flanders. This is the St. Joseph Dialogos with co-host Jake Fowler. Jake, how you doing, brother? Great, man. It's, uh, it's a fine morning here in the Midwest, as we say. Here around St. Louis, tried, I don't care what Charles Kilroy says. Apply, he's still trying to apply Missouri to be just look it Midwest, up. But it's, if you can't you know, throw if, a and hit a great leg, you're not you're not uh, part of the Midwest, in my opinion. But uh, the Saint Joseph, <laughs> the Saint Joseph Dialogos, is uh, part of our apostolate here at Meaning of Catholic to promote true. We we call it Dialogos because that's the Greek term from Socrates, referring to a Socratic dialogue. And this would be what we would term true dialogue versus the false dialogue of some false ecumenism going on. True dialogos is where two parties penetrate and subordinate themselves to the truth. And they do this by this back and forth, as Socrates did. And this is one of the key themes of my book, City of God versus City Man, the manifesto of this apostolate. And this series it attempts to promote especially dialogos between the two orthodox schools of Catholic thought, namely, in the Roman Rite, that is, namely, the Communio School of Thought and the so-called Neoscholastic School of Thought or the Trad School of Thought. And in this episode, we're talking about a very important topic, which is clericalism. This is, this is let me just say, I think Pope Francis is spot on about this problem, but perhaps not understanding it exactly the way he understands it. But I, I've come to believe that the problem of clericalism is more more or less the root cause of all of our ills in modernity, um, or at least many, one of the main roots. And this is something that I think can help with this dialogos because it goes back to uh, problems that were happening in the, in the 19th century. So already with, with Vatican I, I'm gonna, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to point out extremely clericalist actions by various popes going back to Pius the ninth and the effects of these things in uh, the point that I will try to make here. Uh, but before we do uh, be sure to like, and subscribe, share this video and all that good stuff. Actually, the, while this is premiering, I am actually, uh, I'm driving on the road right now to go to on a pilgrimage to St. Joseph, Michigan for a special intention. I have to fulfill a vow that I made for a very special intention. And I have, actually have a new special intention that I, I hope to share publicly in the future. Um, but oh, I fantastic. I, I thought it was very ex exciting that we could restart the St. Joseph dialogue on the same day that uh, I'm going to St. Joseph. So pray for me, pray for my intentions, and I'll pray for you, all the guild members and their Absolutely. Um so if you want to be a part of the guild and uh, join our apostolate, help help this cause of uniting Catholics against the enemies of Holy Church, you can go to meaningofcatholic.com slash register. That's where you can join the guild community. We also just started our, our traditional Bible in a year reading group. So we read the entire Bible through the entire year according to a traditional uh, adaptation of the traditional office of Matins. So right now we're reading Isaiah and Wisdom for Advent and then through the Christmas season. So you can join that. If you join our penance fidelity, so meaningofcatholic.com slash register. So clericalism, what is it? First, I think we need to go back to the constitution of the church and how our Lord founded the church. He founded the church, as St. Paul says, on the foundation of the apostles 
and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And we see in the book of Acts that the apostles as the first bishops are sent out to preach the gospel. And But what immediately happens is they gather in the lay people by converting households. And this is a very key point because they convert a father of his family and then he actually brings his entire household in. And this is the beginning of what would become the doctrine of the two swords. And this is this is the, the fun, fundamental concept of clericalism. This, I, I've titled this, this video Before Church and State, because that very concept of distinguishing between church and state, I, in, in my view, is a clericalist way of thinking, because there really is no firm distinction between church and state. The whole church is the state. And I'll get to that in a minute. Um, but the church is formed as the community of all the baptized in the book of Acts, the apostles preach the gospel, and then it, it encounters these households and the households are all converted. And, and then they're, they're all baptized. And then, then there's a process of the lay apostolate. Here's where the lay people come in because that father of that family learns the gospel from the cleric. And then he teaches the gospel to his children. And so this is this becomes the normal process of Christendom within a Christian sphere, distinguished from when you're going out to preach the gospel in a non-Christian sphere. But now we have created this Christendom in the book of Acts. So we have full households who become uh, a, a, this, this, this two swords working out. So what are the two swords? The two swords are later on uh, delineated by Pope Gelasius in the 400s during the Achaean Schism. And this is where it talks about the temporal order and the spiritual order. Now, this is this is where we should bring up our homework for this, this Dialogos. If you haven't read it, this is the article that we read for this whole conversation uh, over the Josiah. So you can click this link below. It's by Ellen Filmster, Lay Clericalism and Clerical Laicism. And it's important to note here that there is an opposite extreme to clericalism. There's a laicism where the lay people are dominating the clerics, and that's wrong too. So essentially, clericalism can be defined where the clerics are dominating the lay people too much to an excessive degree and taking over their job. And then the opposite is also the case sometimes where the lay people are too much dominating the clerics. And so I, I was talking to Charles Colomb about this, and he said there's basically different periods of the church where there's kind of a laicism the like a laicism period and there's a clericalism period we're currently in a clericalism period so what i'm arguing is that we need to rebalance that a little bit so let me let me um explain what i mean a minute and then uh jake i want your thoughts um so the constitution of the church includes these two swords where the lay people wield the temporal sword this is mentioning this saint paul mentions this in romans 12 where it says that the, the, the government, the state, wields the sword to punish the evildoer. So the lay people are wielding a temporal sword, which is literally uh, a, a punishing. You're punishing. So whether if, if you're a father of a family, you might mete out corporal punishment. That's not really appropriate for a cleric. A cleric should not be meeting out corporal punishment most of the time. Of and uh, but the father of the family meets out corporal punishment. Uh, there's also when the father fathers of families as noblemen are heads of, of society, 
they also conduct just wars of defense against Vikings and, and various invaders, things that go out. So, and then as the state, they are inflicting the death penalty. So these are all examples of the temporal sword. None of these things clerics should be doing. St. Saint, Saint Thomas has this great passage where he talks about how uh, clerics even should not even kill out of self-defense because it's more fitting that they should give their life in imitation of Christ because Christ never shed blood. And so it's a, it's sort of a higher way for the clerics. So the clerics should not be killing people in a just war. They should not be inflicting the death penalty. That should not be the one wielding the sword. Their fight is actually the spiritual sword, which is much more powerful and much more important really because it's, it's washing over our souls. And their job is to sanctify the laity by celebrating the liturgy. And so this is this is su- this is summarized in this quote here from uh, that I put in my book um, that I'll read here. This this quote is from uh, I found it in Christopher Dawson. Yeah, just just recommended books on this topic. I want to recommend um, Before Church and State, which gives us the title of this whole um, episode. Andrew Willard Jones over at St. Paul Center, also a new polity guy uh, before church and state. Uh, also, the godfather of, of spiritual cultural history, Christopher Dawson, the formation of Christendom, another good one on this topic, the making of Europe. So this is a quote that I found in Christopher Dawson, but he was he's actually here. He's quoting um, he's quoting another source, which is um, the canonist Stephen of Tournay. So he died in 1203. And so he summarizes Christendom in these two swords in this way. So this here's the quote, quote. In the same city and under the same king, there are two people and two authorities. The city is the church and the king is Christ. The two peoples are the clergy and the laity, and the two authorities are the priesthood and the monarchy, end quote. So we see that the Christian noble men and noble women, because women also participate in this by, by, by means of being parents, they participate in this temporal sword aspect whereas the clergy are the ones wielding that spiritual sword. But all of it is the church. So there's not really this hard and fast distinction between church on the one hand and state on the other hand. Uh, One of the marks of clericalism is defining the church as all the clerics, but excluding the fact that all the other members of the baptized are also the church. So the state, in a Christian state, this was just describing the Christian state, there is one king who is Christ, and then the lay person who is the, the monarch, he participates in the kingship of Christ, but the local bishop participates in the priesthood of Christ. And both of them have their, their own spheres of influence, their own spheres of... So, so lastly, I'll just say that basically the lay people, their job is to sanctify the temporal order, to promote just laws, to defend the common good. Uh, so their, their sphere is economics and those, those punishments I mentioned just wars, things like that. Those are what the clerics should not be involved in those things. They should be involved in preaching the gospel, preaching the faith. Um, but the key point is that the faithful also have a responsibility because as Vatican II says, they are the first formators, the first preachers of the faith to their children. So there is in a sense where the lay people do participate in a, in a teaching office because they're forming their children. And one of the marks of clericalism is that the clerics have, in our, in our day, not not all, of course, but this is a common misconception that, uh, for example, Catholic school should be 
all Catholic schools should be just clerics running Catholic schools, but really Catholic schools is a lay is a lay institution because it's an extension of the parenthood to form the children. Uh, obviously clerics should be involved as, as necessary, but forming children is the responsibility of parents of lay people. So those are my initial thoughts. Father, what do you think? Uh, good stuff. Good stuff. And I, I don't know that there's a ton to disagree with here. Um, I, I guess I want to start by asking a question and then I'll have to turn it back over to you. Um, you mentioned early on, <clears throat> excuse me, you mentioned that um, you thought uh, and Coulomb thought that we're living in an age of clericalism now. Uh, I, I could see that maybe 75 years ago, but I don't know about right now. So maybe can you explain what you mean or or did you mean like 2023 or were you just saying in the general, you know, the, the, the last few centuries, something like that? Because I see it. I see it differently. I see. Yeah, the word gets thrown around a lot. Um, and yes, we should be wary of the implications of of elevating the clergy beyond their proper sphere. However, since Vatican II, there's been a what seems to me a renewed emphasis on uh, the church as the entire people of God, the body of Christ, this, this uh, communion, if you will. Uh, and so I, I sort of I don't follow on that on that point. So can you explain maybe a little bit about why you think we're, we're in a clericalist era now? Yeah, I, I definitely I do agree with what you're saying, because Vatican II has a whole document called Apostolicum Exuositatem. It's about the lay apostolate. There's a lot of great stuff in Vatican II about restoring that lay apostolate. But the problem is that there's no restoration of lay nobility. And that's really the thing that uh, and there, as I said, I quoted Vatican II. The, there's a great stuff mm -hmm. about parents, which is great. But lay nobility is is just an extension of parenthood. You're You're ruling the government because you're doing it for the sake of your children first. Sure, sure. You want to have a common good for a Christian common good for your children and then for other people's children as well. So that's just Christian nobility. And so there is, um, let me, let me just take this point to make a few points about clericalist actions by various popes. <clears throat> Excuse me. So first of all, Pius the ninth institutes, uh, has Vatican one and he refuses to invite lay people. And this was a, a complete innovation because, as we know from history, that ecumenical council as an institution was started by a layperson, Constantine. And, for, and there's always been a lay participation in the ecumenical council, not as teachers, but as protectors of the clerics. And mm -hmm. they also offer certain wise counsel to the clerics in their own deliberations. And we can see this in history. You can read my book for more. Um, but then we have Leo Thirteenth, who... He makes a political he makes his political opinion about Third Republic France into more or less this dogma because there was a debate among the lay lay people in France over republicanism and monarchy, and he imposed his opinion about a political matter on France, and more or less de facto made it so that Catholics should agree with his opinion, and that was I in my view I think that was a, a, an ex, a, too much an excessive move on his part because. It's really the lay person's job to work that out. Mm -hmm. they, they should be right, the, right. They're kind of the final arbiters. Pius X did the same thing. Uh, first of all, he revokes the veto power of the Holy Roman Emperor over the Pope. And this goes back to the investiture controversy. Wait, um, what? I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know he uh, revoked it. I thought it just hadn't been exercised. It was exercised in the election of Pius X. Uh, and so, then he goes back and revokes it. 
Yeah, so, like, so no, Rampola, Rampola was elected <laughs> Pope in 19, what was it, 1904? 03, 03. 03. 1903, Rampola gets elected. He was vetoed by the Austrian emperor, and so they, right. he was not elected Pope, and then Pope Pius X was elected. And the same thing happened in Pius IX's election, too. But after that, so this was this was part of the investor controversy is a, 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 a compromise where, yes, yes, the pope appoints bishops. Yes, the bishops have their own jurisdiction and they have their own power. But there is a certain cooperation with the lay powers. The lay powers have mm -hmm. certain uh, cooperations with that and they have certain says. And one of these was that the Holy Roman Emperor was able to veto the papal election. And so Pius X revoked that. So he, he's creating a more, just like Pius IX and Pius, Pius X is creating a more clericalist governance of the church. He's removing, like, now, in fairness, these are this is all reactions to a, the most insane laicization of the church with the French Revolution, where we have right. a bunch of heret, heretical lay people destroying the church. Okay, so there's a reason why they were reacting this way. It wasn't just because they, you know, were drunk for power or anything like that. Certainly not. But they were revoking this because they were reacting to a lay of uh, excess on the lay side. So we need to be fair here. I'm not, I'm not trying to blame everything on the clerics. The lay people have their own. Blame. Yeah, no, it, it, they're they, they've got their reasons, and I think that they're within their context. I think they're justifiable. Um, so, but I, I don't. Well, yeah, sorry. Well, go, ahead, me, go ahead. Let me get to the modern period. I just want to. So I'll, I'll fast forward to Paul, Paul the Pius the Twelfth and Paul the Sixth, because this is where. The liturgical reform, I think, is under Pius XII and Pi, uh, Paul VI, both, I think, is is a very a huge ex excess because the the parish church is the monument of the two swords. What do I mean by that? It's because who builds the church? The lay people. The lay people finance the church. The lay people do a ton of stuff to start that, to make that church, the church, mm -hmm. they, they build it, they protect it. Um, they do all sorts of things. They raise the money, you know, in this country, we have all these immigrant lay people who raise sacrifice and scrape together to build these beautiful, glorious churches. And then the clerics celebrate the liturgy as the greatest common good of the church. The liturgy is the greatest common good of the church, which is given to the clerics at, as a, as custodians of this liturgy. Now, the clerics, their job is to celebrate the liturgy, but it does they it doesn't belong to them as if it's just their their toy to play with. It it, it belongs to them as a sacred trust for the greatest common good of, of all people. What happens with Pius XII is that there is an imposition on all the faithful of a liturgical form that the lay people did not ask for. Uh it was against the pious customs of the lay people that the the, the for example, Tenebrae, the Tenebrae service, this, the, the Holy Greek reform of 1955 attacked the Tenebrae service because it moved everything in the evening. So the lay people couldn't go to one of their favorite services, which is Tenebrae. Um, now it's different if, if Pius XII would have said, okay, we're going to designate the cathedral church and we're going to start a new rite as an option. If you want to go great, here it is. That's, that's, here's an option. That's, that's fine. There's, there's no real problem in my mind introducing new rights in the church so the church the clerics have the authority to introduce new rights what in my view what they don't have the authority to do is to uh create this liturgical rupture as rasker says where you abolish what came before mm -hmm. there there is already this you know there's the lay faithful are already celebrating they're they're very attached to these particular rites and these particular devotions why are you attacking those now 
obviously the the Paul the Sixth right was even more so the same thing because it, it was imposing on the faithful all of these things that they didn't ask for. And the lay people since that time, various lay organizations. Now, I, I'm going to set aside the SSPX here because we're trying to talk about the laity here because obviously the SSPX are clerics and they're they're resisting this whole move. But there's a ton of lay resistance from lay people, especially lay people who are uh, well. There's lay people who are totally uneducated who have great resistance to it. They they don't know any Latin, but they love the Latin Mass. And uh, not only that, but we have clerics who are not not only doing that but they're they're destroying the the, the churches that that were that these lay people sacrificed to build they're taking literal hammers to to statues and destroying them they're destroying altars they're destroying all these things and it's an iconoclasm so this is and this is done by clerics because of this clericalist mindset that we we kind of own the liturgy and the lay people and then right, there's right. The, there's the lay participation in the liturgy that's that's another clericalist thing like the lay people uh, I, I don't, I'm a lay person. I just want to go to the liturgy and pray. I don't want to be involved with stuff at the altar that, I mean, that would be for clerical, if it's, you know, clericalized lay people like, um, right. altar boys, you know, that's, that's an example of that, but there's this idea that the lay people have to participate in things that are at the altar in lay clothes. Right. And that, and that's and, a good point. Yeah. Well, besides, aside from the lay clothes thing, um, my two oldest sons serve at mass, uh, along with like 95 other altar boys up there. Um, <laughs> it's, it's insane. Um, and, and they often ask me like, dad, why don't you serve too? There are other, uh, adults who do there. There's a, uh, like a cadre of guys who sing in a school cantorum. And then there's, uh, we have, uh, uh, I'm not going to say the gentleman's name, but he he's, was one of the last to receive minor orders before they were uh, suppressed. And so he's technically in a clerical state, uh, but he's not ordained uh, as, a, as a subdeacon or anything like that. Um, anyway, so my sons ask me, well, how come you don't, you know, grab a cassock and surplus and let's do this? And it's like, that's not my spot, man. I'm over here in the pew with your mother and the little ones. And even when the little ones are bigger and they don't need my attention all the time, um, no, nothing against it, right? I think serving at mass is a beautiful thing, but I want them to see the distinction. Like if I were a single man with no children, maybe, but I've chosen my path, right? Or rather it's been chosen for me and I cooperated with that. And so uh, I, I agree with what you're saying about um, the liturgical matters, like there are degrees of participation and cooperation that have to be acknowledged and respected. And uh, just the same way, we shouldn't be willy nilly making changes to uh, a venerable liturgy. We also shouldn't be willy nilly entering in upon the sanctuary, you know, uh, trying to do too much for lack of a better term. So, yeah, I think I think we can agree on on that point at least. So there's basically there's this idea that comes in the 30s and 40s where certain clerics start to believe that the way that the lay people participate in the liturgy, uh, namely through silence, mental prayer, prayers of devotion, various things. In other words, they're mm -hmm. not speaking out loud the words that the clerics are speaking. There's this idea among those clerics that that form of participation is inferior and should be abolished. And that right there is a clericalist mindset because the, the, the lay people, I, I think of like our forefathers who left their families and mm -hmm. went on the Eastern Crusade to die for Christendom. 
they were all participating in the liturgy with this silence. I mean, like all all the great all these these great lay people, uh, and I'm not and I'm not I'm not saying that it's wrong to, to at all to participate actively in in the sense of talking, you know, dialogue mass, you know, mm-hmm. singing the proper. That's fine. That's great. If you want to do that, great, go for it. But you, we can't we cannot have a a mindset where if you don't do that, you're not actually praying in the liturgy you know you're not actually participating so there, that was the sort of there was the sort of premise of the 55 reform and the 69 reform and so there's been this lay resistance this lay desire now think about if 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 we were in christendom and we had the two swords active and and the 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 and this did actually happen there was actually i remember the 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 breviary reform of paul the third way back in the 1500s because there were certain divine offices celebrated publicly with the lay, lay involvement. And when they imposed that in Spain, the lay people revolted. And, um, but if, if we had the, the, the lay sword happening where you had a lay nobleman whose forefathers built this church and they've financed it ever since. And they're, they've got the mm-hmm. army uh, and if they've got the army protecting this city and if if a cleric, a hotshot Jesuit, came to town and started taking hammers to this statuary that my my pious immigrant grandmother uh, financed, that cleric would be locked in jail. If, if you know the the lay people would take take you know take responsibility, and we've already seen the lay the clerics are asking for the lay help with the sexual abuse crisis because there are um, right. there are policies in every diocese now where if you find that a cleric is has a you know a, an accusation and whatnot, he should be reported to whom? The police, and they're the lay people. So they're asking okay. for lay help to actually deal with this problem. So if the lay people would have been in their power, uh, but the problem was the lay people even at that time they didn't understand their own lay vocation or their lay apostle or their lay authority. Here. Right. Well, I think you know for for things like that where there's obviously been a violation of the law. Um, which we all have to live under, um, you know, so, some laws are better than others. And so I'm not passing judgment on the particular aspect of any of them, but just the, the rule of law that's been present ever since, uh, well, a long time, let's just say that. That's, that seems to me different than um, something like liturgy. I, I do agree with you personally on, you know, the, the points you were making about the liturgy, but changing the mass, like that's not against the law. And so, for lay people to resist that, uh, I think there's a way to do it that's acceptable. And then there's a line that shall not be crossed. Uh, and then, you know, I guess that leads me into another point of pushback would be the, the two spheres, the operations of the laity on the one hand and then the clergy on the other. Who defines those? Right. If, if it's if the waters are too muddied, then there's going to be perpetual conflict and each side always overstepping and having to push back. And then there doesn't seem to be that harmony and peace in the church that Christ des- desires of us. It, on the other hand, if there's like clearly delineated roles for us and for the clerics, then you would think, at least in theory, it would be uh less conflict because oh that's his job that's father's job that's not my job i'm going to be over here doing my thing and we cooperate and everybody's happy so my i guess my question to you um somewhat tongue-in-cheek because i think i already know the answer is who should decide this 
and why? Well, this is a great question, I think. Um, the, the, the funny thing is, this is actually a dubia from the Council of Trent. They were actually going to define, this was on the, the schedule, to define the two swords. Yeah. But they didn't get around to it. And it's really kind of funny in God's providence because right after that, we have a very serious lay problem called absolutism, absolute monarchs who are totally dominating the clerics. They're, they're just ordering around the bishops like their own bureaucracy. And then we have a reaction. So that we have Trent. We have sort of this period of laicism for a while until the French Revolution. And then we have a period of clericalism after that. So we have a I think the Tridentine period is this. We should we should define this. Well, um, who defines it? Um it is a do it is a doctrine of the faith, and so I think it ultimately re resides with the clergy to define that. Um, mm -hmm. But if we if we look at the investiture controversy, there was essentially the same problem of of it was a laicism problem that the clergy were attempting to resolve, but with pushback from the lay people, and they were they made compromises with the lay order to have this modus vivendi. So by Trent. There was a certain modus vivendi going on, but the problem was that the Protestants introduced a new laicism in their own heresies. But there was right. a certain modus vivendi, like I said, like there is the 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 bishop is appointed, but he can be vetoed. So that's like a modus vivendi. Um, <clears throat> sure. But well, you know, you yeah. and I know that the uh, the the purpose of combating lay investiture wasn't because once in a while a, a benevolent monarch would say, you know, I don't think this person is fit to be bishop. Right. Let's yeah, get true. somebody else in here. It was the absolute, uh, maybe not absolute, the the uh, pretty frequent corruption of uh, clerical offices. There was simony, there was clerical marriage, there were um, lots of different issues that we probably don't want to go into in detail right now, but suffice it to say that um, kings back in the day and, and the local landowner, they thought, well, that the church is on my property. That means I get to pick the priest. And it just so happens I want to pick my son. Yeah, and, right. you know, things, things like that. Then the church was sort of uh, responding to saying, well, hold on, you can't do that. Uh, we're going to pick our people instead. And then the, the, the laity, the, the rulers, again, go, well, that's nice, but again, this is my property, and I built this church, and you have to do what I say because I have the army. And so you have this back and forth here that, again, understandable and justifiable from various perspectives, but I think ultimately unhelpful, honestly. I mean, and I know it's maybe a little cliche to say that conflict is, is typically unhelpful. Uh, but in this case, I really think that um, the... The, the move to free uh, clerical appointments from lay oversight was the right thing to do, right, In given the time. Now, should the emperor have retained some veto power? Maybe. I mean, I guess it's a moot point. There isn't an emperor anymore. Uh, who would we have do that? Um, you know, and, and that's a practical problem that could be worked out if in some strange scenario the Pope Francis reinstated the emperor's veto power. Uh, but I guess I, I want to come back to uh, the two spheres and how to define them, because I think if, if uh, according to the article and nothing against Femister, but I, I think something that I want to push back on, I don't know if I could say he overlooked it, 
um, let's see, in the end of the second paragraph, I'm just going to read a moment. It says, a necessary condition to overcoming the crisis is therefore a return to a proper understanding of the clergy and their dependence on tradition and a proper understanding of the laity as a part of the church charged with the wielding of the temporal sword. In other words, a return to integralism. Fair. Except, as far as I understand it, and I was trying to read through, you know, a brief history of the church by Brian Tierney, uh, the spiritual is always seen as superior to the temporal, according to not only the church herself, but pious laymen. Um, and, and various reasons are given for this, various um, arguments presented. The most simple, I think, to understand is that um, if the the church and the spiritual realm is akin to the soul and the temporal sphere, the sphere of the laity is akin to the body, it's pretty clear in tradition uh, and in the scriptures that the soul is to be considered superior to the body if you had to rank them, right? Therefore, the church would always outrank uh, the, the laity, the 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 state, in other words. So if you have this obvious uh, separation of spheres, not, not separation in terms of being opposed to each other, but just separation for, uh, for their proper role, the, the spiritual and the temporal. And it's the spiritual that gets to decide what is the extent of my sphere and what is the extent of your sphere then I would actually say this is not integralism, but that is precisely clericalism. We're giving, we're giving. It seems like the clergy have been given this power by Christ if we are to understand that um, the spiritual is superior to the temporal. And so I think when Femister makes the assertion that a return to integralism would defeat clericalism. I would, I would say no, it would actually amplify it because then we would have a widespread recognition uh, of the, the hierarchy of the church as being our spiritual superiors, spiritual uh, matters being more uh, weighty than temporal matters, and therefore if uh, the magisterium tells me that I have to buy product X because there's a moral crisis involved here, then if I dissent, you know, I'm, I'm going against my lawful superiors. If they're telling me this is a matter of faith and morals uh, and, and political matters and, and, and medical matters, right? If you had to wear certain items to go to mass, what's up with that? So I think... Um, and again, I, I don't know that I have a better solution, but it seems like simply saying, well, integralism, I, I'm not sure that really gets us anywhere. I think that just makes the problem um, worse in a different way. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'll, I'll just make one final point. We can wrap up. And that, that is the the uh, in, in, in before Church and State, uh, Andrew Willard Jones talks about the Pope and the Pope talking to King Louis the Ninth. Uh, King St. Louis, named after your, or your city is named after St. Louis. Fine Midwestern city. Yes. Um, and he talks about the fact that these two swords need to have mutual help of one another. Mm -hmm. the, the, the key point is that we need to 
keep charity and union between these two spheres so that they can mutually help and mutually enrich each other in their own spheres. That's that's the main thing that should because the, the Marxists always are trying to divide everything between us and them. And so that's the main sort of spiritual truth that needs to sort of answer your, your main question, because because this is not defined, it is not totally defined. The, so this this doctrine is not specifically defined, as we as we said. And so there, there does need to be some sort of back and forth or mutual help or some sort of hammering out of this situation between the lay people and the clerics, even though the clerics have the final say in, in terms of the doctrine. But there's also aspects of doctrine that the lay people have sort of a purview over, which is all of the things that are the common good and common inheritance of the church. So the definitive doctrines, the definitive public dogmas of the church that have been defined already before I was born and before any cleric was born today are the common good of the church. And so the lay people can say to a cleric, if a cleric says, I don't believe in the real presence, we can disobey that because we already have this inheritance. We're, we're not relying on private judgment. We're relying on the public judgment that came before us. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I think is the liturgy. And I, and I agree with you that it is the clerics, the clerics do have the final say and they're, they're governing the liturgy. And it's not the same as as these public laws. True. But there is a sense in which there is a it is a common good and common inheritance of everyone. And so the, the cleric should not treat it as if it's just their own possession to do with it as they please. Um, right. But the, those are those are my main points. What are your what are your final thoughts, Father? No, I think on those points, we agree. Um, I guess I, I just still kind of I'm stuck with I don't think integralism is the solution. And again, I, I don't know that I have a solution. I haven't, I haven't thought as, as uh, long and hard as perhaps I should have. Um, however, I think it's, it's, uh, you know, in, in conversation with a, a good friend of mine on the phone the other day, I asked him like, okay, if somebody asked you what's clericalism, what would you say? And he said, well, you know, it's sort of like the word racism, like it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And depending on the context, it could be used to describe a particular uh, instance that somebody thinks they were wronged, or it could be used to describe like a general attitude. Uh, it's just so nebulous that it almost lacks content. You know, like what you can point to individual instances the way you have. And say, this seems to me to be a clericalist thing. Well, somebody on the other side, somebody who maybe disagrees with us about liturgy, could say, well, but these were justified for these really good reasons. One, two, three, four, five, right? That's not clericalism then. Therefore, they might say. Mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, the, the term itself is sort of elusive, right? Um, the phenomenon, what again, what we've been describing is this... Uh, it, the other person I asked for their opinion was Father John Brown, right? One of our favorite Jesuits. And let me just read his response. It was a quick message. Let's see, where did I put it? Right here. Father, what would you say if somebody asked you to define or describe clericalism? Assigning an authority or an errancy, not justly due to priests and religious. Wow. Pretty good. That was, like, a that was great pretty Jesuitical de definition. That's great. Right. So uh, uh, not justly do. So there is an element of authority and um, uh, propriety that is justly due to our clerical superiors. And then there isn't, you know, there there's things that they don't rightfully claim to. 
but again, who decides? If it's the lay people, um, then it would seem that lay investiture should be brought back in full force, and we should have the U.S. Senate and the, uh, the the European Parliament for the EU choosing bishops and appointing priests, and you know which churches to promote and which churches to uh, to close down and all that. I don't think that's the way to go. And on the other hand, if it's the spiritual uh, arm of the church, if you will, that gets to decide, then again, it seems like we're just stuck in this mode of clericalism, even if for the time being they're benevolent, if they have that ability uh, to make the final say, then it seems like we aren't really escaping it. And so in, by, by way of closing, I'll say this, maybe what we're not, uh, what we shouldn't be rejecting is that paradigm. Maybe we shouldn't look at that and say, oh, that's clericalism. Maybe instead, instead of thinking of uh, two spheres, perhaps we ought to think more in terms of one sphere with two aspects. And sometimes the lay people have to pick up the slack on the one end and sometimes the clergy on the other. And in an ideal world, we'd all cooperate and everybody get along and nobody oversteps their own proper role without having to define it. Because again, if we get back to the matter of, well, who's to say, then we have to make a choice. Do we think the clerics are superior or the lay rulers, right? And either one comes with uh, their, their boogeymen. Um, so, you know, I, I hope that my comments have done nothing but confuse everyone because I think this is a highly confusing issue. Uh, I, I'm kidding, but seriously, it's, it's, um, you know, Tim read a bunch of stuff and I read a bunch of different stuff and we're coming together and we've got some agreement and some disagreement. Uh, and I think that's just a testament to the, the complexity of the issue. And it would be, almost too good for me to say, I wish the church would simply define it. Mm -hmm. But that would be to admit uh, that they have the final say in all things. Uh, anyways, that's that. Those, those are my thoughts. Yes. I, I love what you said about just one sphere with two aspects and they, and each sphere kind of picks up the slack of the other when, and I think this is, this is kind of like uh, like lay people prosecuting mm -hmm. a cleric who's um, a sexual abuser it would be example of because in a perfect world the clerics themselves should be punishing this bad guy but we have to pick up the slack or heretical clergy now now the lay people have to shoulder the burden of fighting heresy it shouldn't be our burden we shouldn't have to right. deal with that it should be the clerics dealing with but uh, but that that's good I like that I mean the foundation of charity between these two spheres is 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 critical so with that, let's offer everything to St. Joseph. Um, remember to uh, share this video. Join our guild community, communityofcatholic.com slash register. But uh, let's offer all of these thoughts to St. Joseph, patron of the Universal Church. In nomine Patris, et Filii Spiritus Sancti. Amen. O most powerful patriarch, St. Joseph, patron of that Universal Church, which has always invoked thee in anxieties and tribulations from the lofty seat of thy glory, lovingly regard the Catholic world, let it move thy paternal heart to see the mystical spouse of Christ and his vicar weakened by sorrow and persecuted by powerful enemies. We beseech thee by the most bitter sufferings that its experience on earth to wipe away in mercy the tears of the revered pontiff, to defend and liberate him and to intercede with the giver of peace and charity that every hostile power being overcome and every error being destroyed, the whole church may serve the God of all blessings in perfect liberty. Amen. 
Saint Joseph, terror of demons. Pray for us. Nomine Patris, Filii, Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Jesus Amen. is King. <laughs>